I was running right on time. Now you need to understand, I despise being late. Uh, I, I like to be on time, and if I'm late, it just, it just uh, throws me off. And I was headed towards a speaking engagement recently, and I was just right on time. There was very little time to spare, and I was going to make it. And I was on a highway, and all of a sudden, there was a roadblock. And they were doing some work on the road, and they had us take this detour out and around, way out and around. And so I started to worry I was going to be late. And somehow, by God's grace, I made it right on time. But I remember being frustrated by that roadblock. It was impeding my progress. I couldn't make it to where I wanted to go. Well, this morning I want to talk to you about roadblocks, and specifically roadblocks for the expansion of or against the expansion of the gospel, things that hinder the progress of the gospel. Our text this morning in Acts 21 is about roadblocks. I want to share with you these thoughts from this text. So turn there with me, Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, verse 17 is where we will begin reading. We're going to read just a Short passage here at the beginning of this passage, but we will finish out chapter 21 this morning. Acts chapter 21, verse 17. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Just FYI, our worship pastor Travis and his wife Nikki had their baby this past week. On Thursday, Carter Ray arrived, and they are home, got home yesterday, and they're doing well, healthy baby, healthy mom. I guess Travis is healthy too, and, and, uh, and everyone, everyone is, is doing well, and so that's why he is out today. Um, but be praying for um, that family, their new addition. They are so excited, and uh, it'll be great to have a new addition here at our church as well, have little Carter around. Uh, but I am grateful for uh, Shannon and the praise team and our choir and orchestra just to keep the, the music rolling along and providing us with an outlet to just praise our great God. Amen? So grateful for them. Look with me, Acts chapter 21, verse 17. The Bible says, when we had come to Jerusalem, and this is Luke Wright, and he's speaking of Paul's missionary team, his colleagues. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly, On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we pause to once again honor your great name, to recognize your presence here among us, and to ask for your blessing. As we study your word, I pray that you would anoint me with your spirit, anoint the hearers, that we might understand your word, that we might have the inclination to respond to your word so that our lives can be transformed. Lord, would you just work in our midst? Lord, there are all sorts of different needs represented in this room. And I just pray, Lord, that 
that each one in this room would experience you working in their life in very specific ways as you help and encourage and challenge and heal and teach and transform and mold. Lord, would you just do your work in our lives today by your grace and for your glory. And I pray that in all things, the name above every name, the only name that has the power to save, the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted up in our midst. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. A roadblock is anything that impedes progress. That's what a roadblock is. I was trying to get to a speaking engagement. That roadblock impeded my progress. But this morning I want to talk to you about gospel roadblocks. And a gospel roadblock is anything that impedes the progress of the good news. Our vision as a church is to expand God's kingdom across the street and around the world by sharing the good news about Jesus. And a gospel roadblock is anything that hinders that message, that good news, from getting to those that need to hear it. In our text this morning, we're going to see some gospel roadblocks. And we're going to think about how we are to respond to those roadblocks when we encounter them in our lives and in our ministry. And so I've just got two questions that we're going to uh, pose, and then we're going to answer those questions from our text this morning. The first question is this, what are some gospel roadblocks? What are some things that we will encounter personally, corporately, that impede the progress of the good news? Well, there are a couple here in our text that I want you to see that really apply to us in our situation as well. The first gospel roadblock is gospel confusion. Gospel confusion. When people are confused about the truth of the good news, and they're confused about the message of the good news, that message is being distorted or diluted, that impedes the progress of the gospel to help people that need to hear it. And so in our text this morning, we see that there is some gospel confusion in the church there in Jerusalem. And what we see happen is we see there are some indicators uh, that emerge that show us that the people were truly confused about the gospel. So let me just walk you through some indicators that a person or a people may not truly understand the gospel. The first one is this, an us-them mentality. An us-them mentality. Look what happens in verse 17. It says, when when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers... The Christians there, the church there, received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God. And so Paul comes back, shares what happened on his third missionary journey. He's, he's winding up his third missionary journey by coming back to Jerusalem, and he's sharing with them all that God had done. And they glorify God. They glorify God for the way he had saved Gentiles. But look at how the conversation shifts very quickly in that same verse. It says, when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And so the, the conversation shifts quickly. Paul's saying, Gentiles got saved. And the church in Jerusalem says, praise the Lord. Now, let's talk about the Jews. Isn't that interesting? 
us-them. As you follow the conversation throughout this chapter, uh, there's this us-them back and forth between Gentiles and Jews, Jews and Gentiles. There's definitely in the church in Jerusalem an us-them mentality. Hey, that's great. We're excited about what God's doing among the Gentiles, but hey, let's, let's talk about the Jews right now. What's going on with the, the Jews here in this city? An us-them mentality. And one of the indicators that a person does not truly get the gospel is that they hold on to an us-them mentality. And it can take a lot of different shapes in churches or in the body of Christ. It can be uh, black-white, us and them. It can be young and old, us and them. It can be socioeconomic, rich-poor, us and them. It can be based upon music styles, us and them. And people, uh, if they're not careful and they don't understand the gospel, will grasp onto this us-them mentality. And people that do that, listen to me, do not understand the gospel. Because here's what Ephesians chapter 2 says. The Bible says that Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross that you and I, sinners, might be reconciled to God, brought into a personal relationship with God. That's awesome, right? But not only that, not only did Jesus Christ shed his blood so that you and I could be reconciled to God, he shed his blood so that people from very different backgrounds, Jews and Gentiles, could be reconciled to God in one body. Jesus died on the cross to bring us together and to present us to the Father in one unified body, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel is this, Jesus died to save us as individuals, but he also died to bring people who are very different together that they might serve God with one faith, one spirit, following the same Lord Jesus Christ. And if someone has an us-them mentality, they don't get that. They don't get the fact that Jesus died to bring people who are very different together and make them one. And I don't believe the Jews here in Jerusalem, the leaders of the church specifically, I don't think they got it. Okay, good, Gentiles are saved, that, that's great, but let's talk about our Jewish issues right now. There's an us-them mentality. There's not a oneness within the body of Christ here. Jews and Gentiles worshiping God together. There's this separation. There's this, there's this us-them. And listen to me, an us-them is a, a misunderstanding of the gospel and it is dishonoring to God because God is glorified when he takes people who are very different and he brings them together and they love one another and they serve Jesus together and they make much of his name in this world. Us and them mentality is an indicator people don't get the gospel. Let me give you another indicator that a person does not truly understand the gospel. Misplaced zeal. Misplaced zeal. Look what it says there in verse 20. They said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. What? He said these Jews have believed, meaning they have believed in Jesus Christ. And yet there's this, this zeal for the law. Now here's a question. Why were they so zealous about the law? The law was the Old Testament system God put in place which foreshadowed the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And now that Jesus Christ has come and fulfilled those types and shadows perfectly obeying the law, dying for our transgression against the law, we no longer live under the law. But, but here's what's happening. They're still zealous about the law. 
keeping the law. They believed that their, their zeal needed to be focused on the law. Why is their zeal not focused on Jesus? Misplaced zeal. It's very easy in the body of Christ or as a believer to say, you know, okay, I'm a Christian, but I'm zealous about something other than Jesus. Listen, if you're zealous about things other than Jesus, if he's not preeminent in your life, if he's not your treasure, you don't get the gospel. There's another indicator here, and it is related. A person that does not understand the gospel if they have... Uh, if Jesus is not the focus of their lives. Look in verse 21. Verse 21. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Now why in the world are they talking about Moses? Now listen, Moses was awesome. He was a, an imperfect man that God raised up and used to do great things. He used Moses to lead the people of God, the Hebrews, out of Egyptian bondage and slavery to the very edge of the promised land. He was a great man of God, one of the, the, the meekest men to ever uh, to, to walk the face of this earth. He was an amazing man of God. But isn't it interesting that they're talking about Moses and there's no mention of Jesus? Hey, there's a problem. Paul, uh, the, the rumor is, Paul, that you're telling people to forsake Moses. Why the focus on Moses and not Jesus Christ? If Jesus Christ is not, again, your preeminent focus or your greatest treasure, if you're focused on some other personality or some program or some other aspect of your, of your Christianity, you're missing the point of Christianity. Listen to me. It's all about Jesus. And I think it's revealing that they're discussing the law of Moses without mentioning Jesus and how Jesus has fulfilled the law of Moses. There's another indicator that a person does not truly understand the gospel, and it is a wrong view of works. Look what it says in verse 21. It says, They're zealous for the law. They've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That wasn't true, but that was the rumor going around about Paul telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? Paul, there's a rumor going around that you're telling Jews they don't have to circumcise their children to be right with God. Now, that wasn't true. That wasn't the case. Paul was telling Gentiles that you don't have to be circumcised to be right with God. And he was telling Jews, hey, if you want to keep practicing circumcision as a custom, uh, that's okay, but understand that your circumcision does not make you right with God. Only Jesus makes you right with God. But there's this hyper-focus on the law, the custom, circumcision, these different festivals and feasts and days, because they don't understand these things have been fulfilled in Christ. And they believe, you know, we, we, we placed our faith in Jesus, that's, that's good, but we also need circumcision if God is really going to accept us. Beware of anyone that says salvation is Jesus plus anything. Salvation is not Jesus plus anything. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. Beware of those who want to add on to the gospel and say, you've got to do something if you really want to be right with God. That is a wrong view of works. 
I want you to hear me. Salvation is not spelled D-O. You got to do something to be right with God. Salvation is spelled D-O-N-E. Everything necessary for your salvation has been done, completed, finished by Jesus. He died for our sins. He rose from the grave. And if we place our faith in him, he will apply his finished work to our life and forgive us of our sins and transform our lives. That's the good news. You don't work your way to God. You don't achieve salvation. You receive salvation as a free gift that God offers you through the work of his son. That is the gospel. But a lot of people have wrong views of works. Listen to me. Works do not save. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Works do not save. You're not good enough to save yourself. You and I, listen, we're sinners. We have sinned against a holy God. And the only way we can be reconciled to a holy God is to have our sins washed away. And only the blood of Jesus can do that. I think a lot of people think they're going to stand before God one day. They're going to hold up their hand and say, Hey God, look at all these good works I've done. Surely you're going to let me into heaven. And the Lord will say, What's in your other hand? Well, don't worry about that hand. Look at all my good stuff. What about the other stuff? What about the other hand? What about the sins you've committed? Have those been forgiven in Christ? Works do not save. Listen to me. Works are proof that you are saved. Because when Jesus saves somebody, he changes their life. And begins to do a work in them so that fruit begins to emerge from them. The fact that there are good things happening in your life as a Christian are indicators that you've been truly redeemed, that that the Spirit lives in you, that you get the gospel. Works do not save. They are proof that you are saved. I remember years ago I was uh, pastoring my first church and a gentleman came to work on some things there at the church. And I walked out to the parking lot with him when he was leading, leaving, and I began to share the gospel with him, the good news. And here's what he said to me. i never forget it. He was a young guy. He said, I would give somebody the shirt off my back. He was counting in the fact that he was a good old boy to get him into heaven. I'd give somebody a shirt off my back. Listen to me. Works don't save. Even if you would give somebody the shirt off your back, you're still a sinner in need of a savior. Only Jesus can deal with your sin problem. But these folks are, are hyper-focused on circumcision and, and works and you got to check the boxes and it's Jesus plus all this other stuff. Sure indicators. They do not understand the gospel. There's gospel confusion here in this text. There's a second roadblock and it is gospel hostility. Gospel hostility. We see Paul, first of all, experience misrepresentation. Look what it says in verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, not in the temple, in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. In this text, Paul is being misrepresented. 
They're accusing him of taking Gentiles into the temple with him, which was untrue. Trophimus, an Ephesian, was in the city, but not in the temple with him. As a matter of fact, Paul's team of, of, of missionaries were, were Gentile, some of them. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was with him. He was a Gentile. And so people trying to stir up the crowd says, Paul is bringing Gentiles into Jerusalem, and he's taking them into the inner courts of the temple. Now, that was a big deal. Because a Gentile going into the inner courts of the temple was an offense punishable by death. As a matter of fact, there was an outer court where the Gentiles could gather. They couldn't cross this barrier into the inner courts directly surrounding the temple complex. And at that barrier, there were signs in Greek and Latin fixed uh, to that barrier that warned Gentiles that death was the penalty for entrance. And here's what's interesting. Two of these notices that were up at the temple complex were discovered by archaeologists, one in 1871 and one in 1935. And here's what the text read on these signs of warning to Gentiles. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear responsibility for his ensuing death. Wow. That's serious business, right? And so when the Jews say, Paul took a Gentile with him into the temple, they're all worked into a frenzy. You know why? Paul was being misrepresented. And here's what I want you to hear me say as our culture rapidly changes. If you follow Jesus, and if you stand for the truth, you need to prepare to be misrepresented in our culture today. Where people say things about you that are false, unkind, because our culture wants to marginalize Christians and limit the influence that we have as followers of Jesus. So don't be surprised when you're misrepresented. Jesus was misrepresented, right? They lied about him. They lied about Paul. Don't be surprised when you're misrepresented because people want to stop the progress of the gospel and want to limit your influence on others. That day of misrepresentation is here and it's going to continue to increase in our culture. But not only was Paul misrepresented, Paul was mistreated. Mistreatment was the second Second thing he experienced, this hostility. Look what it says in verse 30. All the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple. That doesn't sound pleasant, does it? Dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So there are some Roman soldiers here called a cohort and their job was to keep peace in this, this city that Rome controlled. He, the leader of the cohort, once, uh, at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Uh-oh, the, the police arrived, right? They stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And so the, the, the guards tasked with keeping peace show up and they find Paul in the middle of a mob about to be torn limb for limb. Paul was beaten. Paul was mistreated here in this text. Gospel hostility. Hostility against the message that we hold dear and we are called to share. 
And can I say this to you? And This is not pastoral hyperbole. I want you to hear me carefully. There is coming in our culture an, an increasing mistreatment for those that name the name of Jesus. I'm not trying to scare you, not trying to worry you. I'm just telling you that day is coming. Did you hear about the law that was just passed in Russia in July? Vladimir Putin just signed into law in Russia um, restrictions concerning people sharing their faith. Listen to what this law says. This law says that Christians cannot share their faith on the internet, in public forums. They can't share their faith out and about in a city or a town or a park or a public forum, a public setting. Christians cannot share their faith in their home. The only place that Christians can talk about their faith, according to this new law, is in government-recognized church buildings. And so the Christians in Russia have some decisions to make, don't they? Are we going to capitulate to this ungodly law and, and disobey God's law to share the gospel with all people? Or are we going to be bold and courageous and share the good news no matter the consequences? Even if we're mistreated, we will be faithful to our calling to be witnesses. They have some decisions to make. And I want you to understand that in the coming days in America, the church is going to have some decisions to make. Are we willing to be faithful to God even if it means we are mistreated? As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons I've chosen to preach through the book of Joshua after I finish Acts, the Old Testament book of Joshua. I'm excited about preaching that book to you. And one of the reasons I want to preach that book to you is because one of the major themes of the book is this, be strong and courageous. And I'm telling you, as as our society rapidly decays, it is going to call for courage on the part of Christians. We've got to be strong and courageous, be faithful to God above all else. And we need to get to the place where we expect mistreatment because it is coming. And some more on that a little bit later. But we see these roadblocks, gospel confusion and gospel hostility, which leads to the second question, okay? Wait, there are roadblocks out there. How do we continue to expand God's kingdom when there are roadblocks? I mean, how are we to face roadblocks and and hindrances to the spread of the good news? How should we as a church, how should we as individuals, as families, how should we face these roadblocks? Well, let me give you several thoughts about how we encounter roadblocks to the gospel. First of all, gospel clarity. Gospel clarity. I cannot overstate how important it is that we be clear as to the gospel message. Now look what it says in verse 19 of chapter 21. It says, After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Notice that word, ministry. What did Paul's ministry consist of? Well, it consisted of going into new areas and sharing the gospel, leading people to to faith in Christ, and then starting churches. And after he would start these churches in different cities, he would leave and go start other churches, and then he would make it a point to come back through those cities where churches were started and uh, follow up, uh, check on them, encourage them in their faith. 
And we know that in between visiting cities, Paul had a ministry of writing letters. And the letters that were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are collected here in our Bible. Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians. These were letters Paul wrote. And, and these letters that Paul wrote as part of his ministry, ongoing ministry, were intended to clarify the gospel. They're intended to, to deal with different behaviors that needed to be addressed and different issues in the life of a church. But the overarching concern of Paul in these letters is that the churches he is writing to get the gospel right. Because he knew the harm that would come if they distorted the gospel message. And so the best way for you and I to overcome roadblocks is through gospel clarity. We've got to be clear about the gospel. You say, Wade, you've used the word gospel about a hundred times this morning. What is the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the gospel is defined for us. It says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That means that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead who has always existed, left the splendor and glory of heaven and he came to the earth, born of the Virgin Mary, fully God and fully man. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He obeyed Perfectly. He was without sin. And Jesus, of his own volition, decided to go to the cross for you and for me. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, he died for our sins. Here's what that means. On the cross, Jesus Christ became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He took all of our sin on himself. Now, if that doesn't sound like a big deal, think about your life. Think about every wrong thought you've ever had. Think about every wicked and careless word that's come from your mouth. Think of your, your acts, things you've done that are shameful. Think of your guilt, your sin, all you've ever done. Jesus Christ took all of that, all of our stuff, all, he took it all on his own shoulders. And he died for our sins. That means that on the cross, he took the punishment that you and I deserve. Over in Isaiah 53, 6, the Bible says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ took our punishment for us. He died for our sins. And after he died, 1 Corinthians 15 says he was buried. And early on the third day, he rose from the grave according to the scriptures. Jesus Christ defeated our sin and Jesus Christ defeated death itself, signifying that he was who he said he was and he could do what he said he could do. And because Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, he is alive today and he will save anyone that places their faith in him alone. He'll apply his finished work to a sinner's life. And that finished work, that blood that he shed, will wash away our sins and reconcile us to a holy God. That is the good news. That's the gospel. And we've got to get it right. The gospel is not, hey, do better. The gospel is not clean your life up. The gospel is Jesus Christ has done it all. Receive his free gift of eternal life and he will clean your life up. That is the gospel Or let me say it like this. The Bible teaches that we are saved by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Amen? That's what the gospel is. We've got to get it. We've got to be clear. We can't water it down. We can't distort it. We're not doing our culture any favors by walking away from the truths of the gospel. We've got to say to a lost and dying community and a lost and dying world, there is one way to be saved. Jesus is that way. He's your only hope. Run to Christ. Place your faith in him. He alone saves. Gospel clarity. That's how you overcome roadblocks, by being clear on the message that we are to preach and to share. But secondly, there's gospel versatility. And there's some very practical insights that emerge from our passage this morning about how we can be versatile for the sake of the gospel. We say, well, what do you mean by gospel versatility? Well, here's what I mean, first of all. Doing what it takes to relate to different types of people. Doing what it takes to relate to different types of people. Now back up with me in chapter 21 to verse 22. James saying there's this rumor going around, Paul, that you are teaching people not to keep the law and you are really undermining uh, the law of Moses and circumcision and it's got a lot of Jews mad because that's their custom, that's how they grew up and they don't like it. Even though they've believed in Jesus, they still want to hold on to the, the law and so they're upset that you're teaching these things. So look at, here's their solution. Verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. People are going to be mad, Paul, when they know you're here. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So here's what they're saying. There are four men who are going through a Nazarite vow. And they complete their vow at the temple. Now we know that Paul was not against Nazarite vows because over in Acts 18, we see Paul took, uh, took on a vow. He voluntarily placed himself under a vow as an act of consecration to God. I preached a sermon on that. And so we know Paul's not against vows, but James' solution is, hey, go with these guys to the temple, show them you're, you're all about vows, all about going to the temple, and it will soothe people that think you're anti-law, anti-temple, anti-Moses. But then they get back to the us-them mentality. But as for Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. They're referring back to the letter sent in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, when they wanted to give the Gentile world some instruction as to how they were to relate to the Jewish law. And so James here is saying, hey, listen, we're talking about Jews now. We've already dealt with Gentiles. They don't have to keep the law. But Jews want to keep the law, so let's make sure that they know you're down with the law. Everybody got that? Us, them. And then look what it says in verse uh, 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now, one of the problems with narrative passages is, is they're often given us without any kind of comment whether we know someone's behavior is right or wrong. And, and the Lord doesn't give us comment as to whether this decision for Paul to take four men to the temple and be under a vow himself to soothe the Jews who were so zealous for the law. We don't know if that was a good decision or not. I tend to think it was not a good decision. I, I believe they should have been talking about one body. They should have been talking about getting Jews and Gentiles together, reconciled to God through the blood of the cro- uh, cross and reconciled to each other through the blood of the cross. There's no talk of unity here. Hey, we sent the letter to the Gentiles. We've dealt with them. Now let's deal with the Jews. 
And Paul, if you'll go through the motions of being under the law, maybe they won't be so mad at you. And Paul goes along with it. Now here's the question. Why? Why does Paul go along with this plan? I don't think Paul thought this was the right move. I don't know for sure, but I don't think he thought it was the right. Why did Paul do this? Why did Paul agree to go under this vow and go to the temple and go through these motions, even though he knew we were no longer under the law? Listen to what Warren Wearsby says. He says, Paul did warn the Gentiles not to get involved in the old Jewish religion, but he nowhere told the Jews that it, would, it was wrong for them to practice their customs so long as... They did not trust in ceremony or make their customs a test of fellowship. There was freedom to observe special days and diets, and believers were not to judge or condemn one another. The same grace that gave the Gentiles freedom to abstain also gave the Jews freedom to observe. All God asked was that they receive one another and not create problems or divisions. And so Paul said consistently to the Gentile world, Jesus saves. Don't let the, the Judaizers make you think you've got to live under the Jewish law to be saved. Jesus alone saves. And Paul said consistently to the Jewish world, Jesus saves. Don't think your observance of the law saves. Now, if you want to keep the law as an expression of your faith in Christ, that's okay. But it's Jesus that saves, not your observance of the law. Does that make sense? And here, he goes along with this vow, these four men. Why does he do that? I believe the answer is found in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 23. I believe this is the reason Paul went along with this, with this plan. Listen to what Paul writes. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. If, if shaving my head and going to the temple and completing this vow gives me relationships with Jews so that I can share the gospel, I'll do it. He goes on to say, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law, Jews. To those outside the law, that's Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all, listen, for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul is speaking of gospel versatility. If I have an opportunity to share the gospel with Jews, I'll do it. If I have the opportunity to share the gospel with Gentiles, I'll do it. I'll do everything I can to relate to them so I can share the gospel with them. He was willing to become all things to all people, to be versatile, to be able to share that good news. Which leads me to this question. Do you have that same gospel versatility? Are you willing to be used by God to reach people who are just like you? And are you willing to be used by God to reach people who are very different than you? Are you willing to try to relate so that you can share Jesus? I'm not talking about sin or disobeying God's clear word. I'm just talking about doing everything you can to not put up unnecessary barriers to them hearing the gospel. I've shared this illustration with you before, but we've got two of our staff members right now in, in uh, South Asia uh, training Christians in that area so they can go out and share the gospel and a church planning movement can start. It's exciting what's happening over there. We've got a family that's living over there full-time permanently that went out from our church in South Asia. And, and, and both of those folks I mentioned, they're, they're, they're in pro- predominantly Hindu areas. And Hindus believe that cows are sacred. 
And so when you're over there, and I've been over there several times, when you're over there, uh, cows are just kind of wandering the streets. No one is you know, making them be anywhere. They, can, they have free reign to just wander the streets. If, you, if, a, if a cow and a, a vehicle come to an intersection, the cow has the right of way. Because they believe, based upon their religious beliefs, that cows are sacred. Now, that's a wrong religious belief, but that's what they believe. And they've all grown up believing cows are sacred. So listen to me. If you're in an area like that, and your goal is to reach Hindus with the gospel, listen to me, you don't invite them over to cook out hamburgers. That'd be unwise, right? Is there anything wrong with cooking out hamburgers? No, we can eat hamburgers. We're not, under that, that, we're not under that. We can eat hamburgers. We don't believe that cows are sacred. But if you invite a Hindu neighbor over and serve them hamburger, they're not going to hear a word you have to say. You have put up an unnecessary barrier to the gospel, right? So why do that? And so Paul is committed to not putting up unnecessary barriers to the gospel. He's, he wants to relate to Jews and Gentiles for the sake of the good news. So he can share that good news with them. So they won't shut him down. So he has this gospel versatility to share with different types of people. Do you have that kind of versatility? Which leads to the second thing. By gospel versatility, I mean ability to communicate with different types of people. Ability to communicate with different types of people. I want you to hear me carefully. There's some real practical stuff that emerges here. Look what it says in verse 37. Verse 37. The wrong chapter. Verse 37. As Paul is about to be brought into the barracks, so the, the Roman soldiers come and rescue him from the mob. As Paul is about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? So Paul, who is a Jew, but he grew up in a Gentile area, Tarsus. He knew Greek, and he speaks in Greek. And this Roman soldier is surprised that he speaks in Greek. And look what he says next. He says, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul can't catch a break, can he? He's misrepresented by the Jews, and then this Roman soldier thinks he's an Egyptian assassin <laughs> because he speaks Greek. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. He's letting them know I'm a Roman citizen here. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. When he'd given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. And chapter 22 is his message, which we'll study next week. that interesting? When Paul's talking to Roman soldiers... He speaks Greek because he knows it. When he speaks to a crowd of Jews, he speaks Hebrew so they can understand him. You know what that is? That's gospel versatility. And let me just give you just an exhortation related to to languages, particularly to our young people in the church. I want to encourage you, when you have an opportunity to, to study a language in school, to take it seriously. I had to take language when I was in high school and I took Spanish 1 and Spanish 2 and I just want you to know I did not take it seriously. I had Senor Kester and, and I just did what I could to get by and, and listen, my daughter knows more from watching Dora the Explorer about Spanish than I do now. But you know what I wish? I wish I would have paid more attention to that, that, that language so I could have a, another language under my belt so I could be more versatile. 
As a matter of fact, uh, my last church, there was a group of, uh, of, of men working on some, some um, power lines near, uh, near the church, and they were taking a lunch break. And so I walked outside to talk to them, and everyone on the crew was um, Hispanic. And, and I began to talk to one who looked kind of like the leader of, of the group, and I asked if I could address the men they were sitting there eating lunch, and he said I could. And so I just walked through a brief gospel presentation. They were listening to me. They were eating their food, and it got done, and there was just no response. No one said a word. And I said to the foreman of the crew, I said, do any of these men speak English? He said, no. And so I handed him a track and I said, would you just read this to them in Spanish? And that's all I could do. And oh, how I wish at that moment I was more fluent in that language. And listen to me, even if you're taking a language that is not one you may use down the road. For example, say you're learning French and then God calls you to, um, to, um, to India to use Hindi. Say, what good is French going to do for me? Well, learning a language gives you some, a, a framework for learning more languages. You understand the grammar better and declensions and all of that kind of stuff. And so when you learn a language, it kind of puts a framework in your mind so you can learn languages better. And so even if you're le- learning a language right now in school that you don't think you'll ever use again, listen to me, take it seriously. Take it seriously because God can use it to make you more versatile for the gospel. My brother, he was uh, valedictorian of our high school, and I had to grow up you know, behind him, and I'll just say I was not valedictorian of our high school. And, and, and he, of course, was a great student. He took his language seriously. He was, listen, my brother spoke Spanish so well that the local sheriff's department would call him if they arrested someone that spoke Spanish so that he could interpret for them and the officers. I mean, he was being used. I mean, he could, he could, he could speak Spanish. And it, it made him more versatile, and it will make us more versatile if we will take languages seriously. And so I just want to, just, that's just a quick word of encouragement uh, that you take languages seriously, particularly to our young people. I remember when we went to uh, France, and we were providing uh, ministry for missionary families' um, children. Uh, we were kind of doing some ministry with them while the, their, their parents had a, a meeting together, a very important meeting together. So we got to go over there and just provide child care and ministry with students all the way down to, to infants. Some of you were with me on that trip in, in France. And I'll never forget that uh, Claire and I were working with a group of teenagers uh, during that week. And they were from you know, Belgium and, and, uh, and, and France and different places in that, in that uh, Western European area. And, and these kids spoke three, maybe four languages just versatile, I mean versatile, uh, who they could speak to and address. And so I just want to make the plea, let's take languages more seriously. You'll be glad that you did. He was able to communicate with different types of people. It made him more versatile. And by the way, we've got people that we know and love that are serving as missionaries right now overseas. One of the ways you can very practically pray for them is pray for their language acquisition. Pray that they will learn and grow quickly in in the language so they can share the gospel with folks. It's a great practical way to pray for people that are missionaries overseas. Pray for their language acquiring. There's one final thing I want you to see. How do we handle roadblocks? We have gospel clarity and gospel versatility, but third and last, gospel confidence. Look what it says back in verse 17. When we come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one, I like that, one by one, the things that God had done, God had done among 
the Gentiles through his ministry. You know what Paul's doing here? He is leading a global impact conference. We have one coming up in September. We're going to bring missionaries in from all over the world in North America, and we're going to celebrate one by one the things that God has done, right? And Paul is recounting what God has done. He's recounting the triumph of the gospel. And so we can be encouraged. Even though there are very real roadblocks, we can be encouraged to have confidence in the gospel. What do, what do you mean by confidence? I mean confidence in the gospel's power to save. Over in Romans 1, verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we can have confidence in the gospel's power to triumph. You see, there are some roadblocks here. Paul was arrested, just like the Spirit said he would be. And there's a crowd against him, and there's danger and hostility. There's confusion. There are roadblocks. But guess what? Paul's arrest, listen to this. This is so important. Paul's arrest would be the mechanism that God used to bring him and the good news message before kings. Isn't that awesome? So these folks thought they were stopping the gospel, and God was using the roadblocks to accelerate the gospel. Isn't that awesome? We can have confidence that as people try to hinder the progress of the gospel, if we will be courageous and faithful to share, God will use his power to triumph over every roadblock and get the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Gospel confidence. Listen to me. As our society becomes more and more hostile towards Christians and our society tries to marginalize Christians, here's what's going to happen. We've got some decisions to make. We're going to stay by the stuff and be faithful to God, or we're going to shrink back. And those that are the real deal are going to stay by the stuff. And when that happens, there will be a purifying effect on the church of Jesus Christ here in America, and the church will experience power like you can't even imagine in our nation. And those enemies of the gospel who think they are stamping out Christianity will be will be accelerating Christianity. They don't even know it. Isn't that awesome? Because God has the power to triumph over every roadblock. Have confidence as we faithfully share the gospel. So here's the point. We'll close. We should share the gospel with confidence and clarity with everyone we can. We share the gospel with confidence and clarity with everyone that we can. Clarity, versatility, confidence. God will use his church to overcome every roadblock.